Hi, everyone. Welcome to Tuesday Night Rheumatology. This week, like last week, we're doing a Stills Disease Journal Club, and I'm joined by some real experts in the field. If you all would turn on your cameras and, and whatnot, that would be fabulous, and we can introduce ourselves to the audience. I'm joined by Olga Petrina, Hermine Brunner, and Dan Lavelle. Dan's camera's not working well, but I'll ask everyone to introduce themselves and where you're from before we get started. Start with Olga. Hi, I'm Olga Petrina. I'm a rheumatologist at Scarsdale Medical Group in New York area. Okay, and Dan? Uh, Dan Lavelle, I'm a pediatric rheumatologist at Cincinnati Children's Hospital. And Hermine, turn, turn on your, your microphone. I'm Ina Prana. I'm a, a pediatrician, a pediatric rheumatologist at Cincinnati Children's. And like Dan Lovell, I was one of the lead authors and lead investigators on the uh, systemic JA studies that are being um, reviewed today. Superb. Okay, folks. So what we're going to do here is I'm going to do a share screen and we're going to review for our audience what we think are two important um, papers regarding the treatment of pediatric and adult Stills disease. Um, and we've chosen these because uh, all of the discussants have a fair, fairly good history um, with the data and these studies. And we'd like to get their perspective. I want to uh, ask the audience that if you um, have a question, um, don't use the chat, use the Q&A, and we'll get to that during or after the um, journal club. Uh, we will end at the top of the hour. Um, in the chat box, however, you will find links to the articles that we're presenting today. So let's um, start with um, this opening slide that I have here. Um, as you can see, this is uh, sort of the introduction to what we're doing um, and who's on the call. We're going to talk about a canakinumab trial um, used for the approval of um, in adult Stills disease. And the tender trial about tocilizumab and its approval that led to its approval in systemic JIA. So um, let's begin by, I want to just make a few uh, comments here that I think can help set the stage about where rheumatologists are. Now, this is um, biased in that it's largely a survey of adult rheumatologists. On uh, 2018, 250 rooms were asked about what drugs they use and what they think. 70% um, believe that stills is an IL-1 driven process and a quarter believe it's an IL-6 driven process. Um, when they were asked about after steroids, what were they likely to use? Half would use a biologic and half would use methotrexate. When asked which biologic, 71% preferred anakinra, 15% preferred tocilizumab. And you can see that 20% um, of the people responding had no stills patients and hence no experience. Um, and the rest did have some degree of experience, but most of them were getting their patients referred from either PCPs and hospitalists, infectious disease, and, you know, very few are actually de novo new cases to them. But I thought this was important. So uh, we're going to review two main treatments here, and we're going to be talking about both systemic and articular disease. But you can see that, um, you know, the leading candidates here are going to be anakinra, canakinumab, and tocilizumab. And the ACR guidelines uh, on the treatment of systemic JIA recently published um, a few months back. Um, and uh, they actually reviewed both treatments of oligoarthritis and TMJ, but then systemic disease. And here's the algorithm. And they first asked the question, 
If you have MAS, you go somewhere else. But if it's systemic JIA um, and, um, uh, and you don't have MAS, then they, uh, if you do have MAS, they're recommending you could treat with an IL-1 or IL-6 inhibitor as first-line therapy. And, and the, the light green boxes are conditional recommendations. The dark green boxes are more evidence-based. Um, and then they also say and or trial NSAIDs, because there's this, this historic thing about NSAIDs and their use in systemic JIA. But I think, you know, the question is now, do we go right to IL-1 or IL-6 inhibition? Um, currently, um, drugs that are approved for use in uh, systemic JIA in kids, canakinumab was approved in 2013 in the United States. Um, earlier, tocilizumab was approved in 2011 for the IV administration, and then in 2018 for the sub-Q administration. And then only in the last um, two years has canakinumab been approved for use in adults with uh, Stills disease, uh, and that's sort of a new development. But, you know, everyone tends to talk about anakinra. I'm going to show you two slides on anakinra, because most of us that do use cytokine directed therapy still are using this as opposed to the two drugs I just showed you. Um, here's two studies, one from Peter Nig Nigrovic from uh, Boston, uh, 46 patients, a multi-center study, 60% having a complete response, 39 and 39% having a partial response, generally good data. And a lot, this is like what a lot of the trials look like early on. Um, and these were trials actually that both Hermine and, and Dan were involved in another study just more recent from Fabrizio Di Benedetti showing a, of his 56 patients that were treated uh, in trial, looking at remission off steroids, that 73% met the criteria for clinically improved um, disease at uh, roughly at three months um, is when this was achieved in most patients. So Anakinra, there's a lot of both open label, um, but also some control data saying it works, especially in kids, but very little in adults, I must say. So, and then this, then more recently in 2020, um, the FDA came out and said that um, icanakinumab was approved for treatment of adult Stills disease based on the data I'm going to show you, noting that it had already been approved for systemic JIA in kids over the age of two. Um, I don't know, prior to this approval, I was getting this drug approved by saying my patient who's 37 years old is over the age of two, and therefore merits you know, <laughs> treatment with canakinumab. Um, and yes, he does have systemic JIA. It just happens that he's an adult. And, you know, Nikolai Nikolaev, who uh, is the division director uh, at the NIH, said this is a, you know, basically a brand new and important <coughs> approval for patients who have no options. But more importantly, the FDA release has this line, which I think is important and, will, and bears mention here. And that AOSD is a, is a rare and serious condition of unknown origin. And basically he equates adult Stills disease with systemic JIA and suggests that this is a disease continuum rather than these being two distinctly different disease entities. So the FDA coming out and making that, uh, taking that stance, it took them a number of years to do that, but it was nonetheless important in getting canakinumab approved in um, in adults with Stills disease. So I'll stop there and ask for any, any comments from um, the discussants on the call. Well, I think I would agree with uh, defining adult Stills disease as a continuum, continuum of SJA, 
because we do see a lot of common clinical features. We see similar interleukin signature in both conditions, and the patients tend to respond to treatment similarly to similar groups of medications, I would say. So there is uh, like a lot of similarities in presentation. And of course, you know, as a person grows up and, uh, you know, progresses in their life, some of the manifestations can be different. That's why maybe other physicians could think of it as a different condition when, when we diagnose it in adults. The other thing I would point out in my experience is a lot of uh, patients who are diagnosed as adults they actually had symptoms in childhood, but they were omitted or not diagnosed as a childhood disease. So the question is, are all adult stealth patients truly adult onset stealth disease, or are they the uh, you know, delayed manifestations of childhood disease or relapse after prolonged remission? Right. One of the key features that we've learned from our pediatric rheumatologist is that this is a disease that has disease-free intervals that could be long, could be months, could be years. And as Olga points out, the series of adult stills shows that somewhere between 25 and 50% of patients had a prior illness in childhood that could have qualified as systemic JIA. Um, Hermine, what's your, your feeling on, on that idea that this is the same disease in adults and, and kids? I think it's the same disease, uh, both in terms of involvement and response to therapy. Uh, albeit in children, there must be some, you know, larger genetic contribution to the disease that then elicits the early onset of disease in, uh, during childhood. Yeah. Again, it'd be great to know what those triggers are. Is it a, is it a genetic predisposition? Is it, um, is it an environmental trigger? Um, we don't really know. What it was curious is that some of the studies that have been done on mainly systemic JAs show that many of them have some of the genes that predispose to other periodic fevers. Um, and, and that sort of links to maybe there's a genetic predisposition. It you know, mm -hmm. could also mean that maybe they were misdiagnosed. But Dan, what do you think? Uh, <clears throat> no, I agree with the others that it's the same disease. Um, number of studies have shown that that's the case. Uh, another learning that we're doing in pediatric rheumatology is we have to take systemic JIA out of the mindset of JIA because it's really uh, tremendously different than the other. As you pointed out, it's not an inflammatory disease and all the other uh, types of JIA are uh, autoimmune. So our current classification criteria is undergoing uh, review to more appropriately put systemic J with other auto-inflammatory diseases and take it out of the subset of autoimmune diseases. So that's another change we're going through. And I think there's an international group uh, convening to come up with similar diagnosis and response criteria for the full spectrum of disease in adults and children. Right, and that would be great to see because it would it's sorely needed as these trials will tend to point out. Um, so the first is the canakinumab. Uh, I'll, I'll try to go through these somewhat quick because um, I'd rather hear your comments on these data and their applicability. This study um, was published in 2020 um, and kind of was the basis upon which um, it was approved in adults. And that's surprising when you see some of this data. Uh, again, you should note that canakinumab was EMA approved um, in Europe back in 2016, um, as was Anakinra. 
but we had no approval for adult stills. And then until this data came along. In this trial, there were 56 patients that were enrolled, all of whom were adults, all of whom had active disease, at least by arthritis, with greater or uh, four or more tender and swollen joints. They all met Yamaguchi criteria for the diagnosis, uh, which means they must have had more than just the arthritis. And then they were randomized to receive um, either placebo or canakinumab um, uh, with a max dose of 300 milligrams um, per day every four weeks. The endpoint here, which is one of the problems in Stills disease studies, is been um, clinically a clinically relevant reduction in disease activity as measured by a change in dash 28 of greater than 1.2, meaning we don't, as, as Dr. Lovell just pointed out, we don't have um, an endpoint measure that's specific for systemic disease. And as was done in the tender trial, it was improvement by, in the JCR30 with no fever. Now, they also looked at no fever in these patients, and we'll show you that data. You could see on the left the sort of confused nature of the enrollment here. 41 patients screened, 36 randomized, two were excluded, one with Whipples, and then there were also two, I guess it was one of the ones with Whipples, that, um, um, that were excluded because they were supposed to be in the placebo population. And then at week four, they got the canakinumab in infusion. Um, and in the end, we're looking at you know, the 17 on canakinumab and 14 on placebo and how many responded. And you can see of the 17 canakinumab, there was 12 out of 17 responded. In the placebo of the 14, it was half of them responded. Um, and then on, on the left, you can, on the, your right, you can see what these patients look like, meaning there were very few, 33 to 47% with disease of less than um, one year. Um, 70 plus percent had received a biologic DMARD. Um, 66 to 76% had previously received anakinra. A third had received TNF inhibitors prior to the trial. And 10 to 20% had received tocilizumab. So you can see this is a fairly um, uh, experienced population as far as drug exposure, um, and meaning that they were really quite refractory. Yet, you know, nine and eight had fever going in. A few had lymphadenopathy. Four had four or ten a total had skin involvement. Um, myalgias was in one patient. So they did collect that. They did look at that. Turns out that the systemic features were not very important overall here. Uh, Olga, any comments about the enrollment criteria? Yes, I think what it brings us to is what type of stills patients we are actually treating or which type of patients with stills were chosen for this trial. Uh, it, it seems like the duration of the disease and manifestations point towards most chronic articular stills rather than systemic stills that, that we typically see in the beginning of the disease course. And that uh, makes me think uh, about what type of interleukin inhibitor would you choose for an early patient with more systemic manifestations as opposed to patient with chronic articular disease. And it may even signify that the interleukin signature changes over time, depends on what manifestations patient has. So um, I think it also uh, influenced uh, the results of the study, even though it wasn't complete, it was terminated early. Uh, mainly because the category of the patients were predominantly articular. Right, right. And, and it could have been articular because a lot of them received systemic therapy that could have washed away the systemic features and left them with chronic articular disease. Correct. And while we could 
say it's disappointing that they weren't treating systemic disease, we could say, well, interestingly, the chronic articular patients that didn't respond to all those other therapies did respond to canakinumab, but let's see how much. So I guess it was, I, the numbers are a little wrong here. It's 37 were picked to randomize. One was excluded, so it's 36, but then two were excluded later on. Um, and that's the basis for the analysis. They had high disease activity as far as their DAS 28 ESR scores being over 5.2. Um, and the intention to treat analysis, they had 67% in the canakinumab group versus 41% in the placebo group who responded in meeting the primary endpoint. And that was, again, a change in DAS of greater than 1.2. That was not significant, meaning the primary endpoint was not met. All right. And that difference between those two groups was not significant. While they measured systemic manifestations, there was no significant changes in those, but that's probably because there were too few. At week 12, the number of canakinumab patients that was free from fever for at least seven days was 78% versus 65%. Again, a trend, but not significant. Same thing was less skin manifestations with canakinumab versus placebo, 4.8 versus 6.7. Again, a trend, but not significant. They, after they excluded their two patients did a, a per protocol analysis, um, they said that there were greater ACR 20, 50, 70 responses. Um, I'll show you that in a second. And the number of people who had DAS remission was 33% with canakinumab and 11% with placebo. Again, not statistically significant, but the numbers are low. The group size are low. On this slide on the top, you can see what happened to ACR 20, ACR 50. Just look at the responder columns to see the numbers. The ACR 20 was 61 versus 41. The ACR 50 was 50 versus 17. The ACR 70 was 28 versus 12. But none of those were significant, but I think our sample size here is really quite small. They had patients who entered open label, they all did well, but they only had open label accounting for the seven responders who went into open label. And then their safety um, outcomes were really quite mild. Uh, and with a few cases of SAEs that were seen, none of which were clearly related to the drug, you know, um, and, you know, there's a lot of intercurrent illness kind of things going on here. So, uh, again, they came away saying, you know, apologies. Uh, first off, the, the, the article says that, you know, they made the bridge between systemic JIA and adult JIA, systemic JIA. And then they said they had problems with recruiting because of the rarity of disease, the severity of disease, and the EMA approval of canakinumab, it made it hard to recruit. And that's why they prematurely terminated the trial with only 36 out of their plan 68 patients needed for their efficacy analysis that was further hampered by not having identical, identical placebo. And that led to some basically meth, uh, you know, procedural problems that led to some mistakes in dosing. Um, they did show in a sub-study that looked at biomarkers that the, the, the transcriptomic signatures in adults was similar to that of systemic JIA. And I think it's based on this positive data along with previously positive data in systemic JIA that it gets the approval in adults and becomes the first biologic approved for adults with Stills disease. Um, but I wanna ask uh, Hermine and Dan what their opinion is. Obviously this data is not strong, but is it strong enough given what you know and what you and your colleagues have proved with canakinumab and other IL-1 inhibitors in systemic JIA? 
Well, over here, the premise is that adult onset or the stance of the FDA was that adult onset stealth disease is the same disease as systemic JAA. Different than what we normally see in rheumatology trials, in SJA, three trials were done to get approval for canakinumab in systemic JAA. And this time, the adult onset disease followed up and and was a, and the um, and canakinumab was approved in the adult onset still disease population because of the good experience in systemic JAA and the virtue of extrapolation of the evidence from children. So we saw similar trends, we saw similar um, improvements in adults as in children. And as you pointed out, the results were not significant, but that, you know, the study was largely underpowered. Right, All right. Okay. Um, so with this data and with this approval, I guess I wanna ask Olga, Olga has getting an approval for your adult patients made life easier in treating your adult patients? Are you more able to go to biologic therapy by having an FDA approved drug? Absolutely, I think it makes uh, it much easier to approve than it used to be in the past. In the past, we had to be creative, uh, call it this periodic fever syndrome, you name it, just to, to get insurance to, to approve the medication, even show value of other treatment options. But now with this approval and this being pr pretty much the only FDA approved medication for the condition, we can argue with insurance companies when they insist on, let's say, methotrexate or cyclosporine or whatever, another crazy request they make that those are experimental treatments for the condition while carikinumab is FDA approved. And it usually makes uh, the process very easy. So even if it does not get approved from the first request, on the appeal with the letter of medical necessity, it makes it very easy to get the medication to the patient. I wanna quickly go back to this slide and ask um, Dan um, and Hermine their opinion of um, this algorithm by the ACR that says that if you have systemic JIA and there is macrophage activation syndrome, MAS, um, and you go to the right, the first, recommended therapy is IL-1 or IL-6 inhibition and or glucocorticoids. Is that the standard of care? I mean, your center in Cincinnati has been a leading center in um, not only in systemic JA, but also the um, MAS and our understanding of that. Is that where we should all be going when we encounter macrophage activation syndrome, Dan? Carmine. Oh. Well, we know that um, macrophage activation syndrome very likely is associated with hypomorphic mutations that are also seen in HLH. So in her hereditary histolymphocytosis. And uh, we do know that one of the triggers of MAS is high disease activity. So treating systemic JAA effectively with R1 and R6 inhibition helps controlling the MAS. Now, for very another treatment for MAS is systemic or systemic steroids. They're not always sufficient, but they are the first line treatment for MAS. And so, if there's a high inflammatory state, MAS uh, systemic steroids would be indicated. Having said that, it has been shown in the past that neither R1 nor R6 inhibition can completely abort the development of MAS episode in those who are predestined or who are genetically predisposed getting in. 
it, there's, there's increasing evidence that the MAS process is driven by interferon gamma and high levels of them. And for those very often, uh, JAK inhibitors are used as co-therapy. Interesting. Have you, uh, I, I know you know the data of Fabrizio Di Benedetti about emipalumab, the monoclonal antibody against yeah. gamma interferon. Um, do you have experience with that? Yes, it works like a charm. We had, so this MAS, uh, MAS is really a spectrum. Some children get maybe one episode, you know, once at the beginning of the disease, some get them regularly, some have chronic MAS. So the MAS never withdraws and can actually cause or is associated with interstitial lung disease and other organ damage, including chronic liver disease. And uh, there are some who are so severely involved that, you know, they are basically uh, close to dying. And we had a couple of kids who uh, had very high inflammatory markers with ferritin levels in the 30 and 40,000. And with emipalumab, those levels came down. And these children actually now have a normal life, but they do need intermittent or sometimes even chronically emipalumab. Nice. Well, uh, so I like and the that response is really quite dramatic. We had kids sent to us, went straight to the ICU and within a a few days, a couple of doses there, they were tremendously improved and uh, went home in a month with minimal steroids where they had been steroid dependent and still doing poorly. So the, the response can be quite dramatic. Uh, Jack, I think my only um, um, addition to this slide would be to think more severe cases of MAS in which you don't necessarily have access to that biologic. Uh, cyclosporin has been shown to be very effective in, in treating MAS too. So the combination of systemic glucocorticoids and, and cyclosporin uh, uh, are very effective treatments for the vast majority of people with MAS, systemic JA patients with MAS. And when you consider all those things, the steroids, the cyclosporin or atoposide or the IL-1 or IL-6 inhibitor or emipalumab, um, speed becomes more important the sicker the patient because these kids, these adults can have up to a 40% mortality rate. Right, and it's about 20 to 30 in children, so. Yeah, okay. Yeah. All right, excellent. All right, so we're gonna go on and, and, and look at the uh, data from the, um, the tender trial. Here we go. So the TENDER trial uh, um, was uh, a pivotal study, I think it was 2012 that this came out. Um, you know, a lot of these trials are done by um, Printo and PRSG. I want to ask who wants to tell me what, what this is a, obviously a, co a collaborative study group that's highly productive that you all are part of, but can someone say address the group and what they do? So um, the PRCSG, um was founded probably over 45 years ago, well before the, the proliferation of, of eponyms and that sort of thing for network names. So it's Pediatric Rheumatology Collaborative Study Group and uh, there's centers throughout North America uh, for the PRCSG and then Printo is a more recent group, uh, but um, covers the rest of the world. Um, and so they, started in Europe and now they spread to South America, uh, Asia, 
Uh, we they've recently added centers in China and India. So it's uh, truly between the two groups. They cover the globe, and the and uh, we have shared um, um, responsibility for designing and and performing these studies now collaboratively for 20 plus years. Yeah. And the goal is to do a single study that stands for registration for kids with that form of JIA throughout the world. Yeah, that's, that's highly commendable. And um, anyway, so this study, which I, I thought was a game changer as soon as I saw it at ACR and ULAR those years, two, 112 kids uh, age 17, I'm sorry, two, uh, let me go back here, sorry age two to 17 years, had to have active systemic JIA for more than six months, despite treatment and an inadequate response to non-steroidals and steroids. Um, and then they're randomized to receive the anti-IL-6 receptor antibody tocilizumab at either eight or 12 milligrams per kilogram. And again, the adult rheumatologists are well used to the doses of four to eight, not 12, but 12 is required, especially in kids under um, uh, 30 kilograms, uh, or they were given placebo. And these infusions occurred every two weeks for a 12-week period. And that was the primary endpoint. Of course, the study went on for two years uh, after that. Uh, overall, there was 37 who were randomized to placebo and 75 to tocilizumab. The primary endpoint was a JCR 30, that's like ours, you know, six variables, um, with uh, uh, a certain number, of four out of six needing to be over 30% response and their articular variables, and then also not having fever. That's an important add-on here. And after um, the primary endpoint, non-responders were certainly all open or offered to receive tocilizumab as open-label therapy. This is the profile of patients enrolling in the study. The average age was nine to 10. The disease duration was five years. You can see that 70% um, uh, or more received a DMARD, most of that being methotrexate, but even cyclosporin, thalidomide, and sulfazalazine. Um, 78 to 84% had previously received a biologic agent. Um, 35 to 55% had previously received an IL-1 inhibitor. And 70 plus percent had received a TNF inhibitor. Another, I believe, a gigantically common mistake in rheumatology to treat systemic JIA or um, adult stills with a TNF inhibitor if they have systemic features. Um, um, many of them were on methotrexate during the trial and many of them were also um, were on glucocorticoids. Um, as you can see here, 80% uh, or so were on, or stayed on their, their glucocorticoid dose. Um, this was one of the earliest um, slides that I made. This is back in 2010. Um, that showed the number of patients responding. The primary endpoint of, of a JCR30 was 85% versus 24%. Um, and then in the open label extension, they did continue to do really well. On the bottom, you can see um, how many were fever-free, how many were rash-free, how many had met the um, JCR70 definition. Again, highly impressive data that was seen in, in this trial at, at, at 12 weeks. Here you can see what happens to their, um, uh, the JCR30 and the other ACR70, 50, 90 responses um, on the right. Obviously, the, the, those that are on drug are the top three um, um, uh, lines. I'm sorry, 
the, this is actually the, uh, the response rates beyond week 12. And the, the lowest line is at ACR 90 with no fever. So all these um, joint responses are predicated on not having any fever going out to two years. And then you can see similarly that as they get better, their obligation to use glucocorticoids goes down significantly, especially um, uh, after week 12 and you know, sort of really being a very low number um, by the, the uh, week 52. Any, any comments on these response rates? What? Uh, okay. Uh, yeah, I'm trying to get unmuted here. So, Jack, can you hear me? I can hear you. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead so, I think if you look at the uh, response curve, uh, that graph on the left, you can see how rapidly these patients respond. So, yeah. uh, uh, you know, um, th this is given once a month. So, you can see by by after the first injection, um, over sixty percent of these patients demonstrate an ACR thirty and no fever by the 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 week four visit. So the response in these patients uh, is really quite rapid uh, and dramatic. Uh, the higher levels of response, a more articular improvement uh, take a little bit longer, but the ACR 30 and no fever is really very rapid. Uh, and the ACR criteria, only two of them articular. One is uh, SED rate, and the other are the parent global of, of overall disease impact in the MD global of disease activity. So it's a very comprehensive assessment of the state of the child uh, with the ACR 30, 50, 70 uh, parameters. Uh, and then you add the control of the systemic feature. So these kids were, uh, as you showed in the background, uh, chronic non-responders who had been tried on everything available. Uh, they were tried on TNF because, you know, at this time we had no approved IL-1 or IL-6 therapies. And so these kids had demonstrated persistent disease. Over 50% of them still had active systemic features at the time they were enrolled in the study, you know, on average five years later. So this was a, a very, um, treatment resistant group. And you can see what happens when you treat them with a biologic that tightly fits the biology of the disease. Yeah, that's amazing. Do you think it, um, the rapid response was the result of the Q2 week administration of tocilizumab or was it the doses that were used, which were admitted, uh, I think really quite high, including a subset that needed the 12 milligrams per kilogram dose? Well, so they did PK assessment. I misspoke. It's every two-week dosing. I'm sorry, but but um, they did PK assessment after the fact. And the exposure for the younger kids, the smaller kids that are on the higher dose, is the same as the other group. Uh, and we did some um, earlier PK work in this group and and adjusted the dose based on what we felt was necessary to control the systemic features because. Uh, you know, systemic disease, uh, at least systemic J patients, the levels of the inflammatory cytokines are really much higher than they are for polyarticular disease. So the, the dose of tocilizumab for systemic 
is uh, higher than it is for polyarticular JIA. And we did that to mirror the fact that the intensity of the inflammatory response is, is greater in kids with systemic JIA. Yeah. Again, these are very impressive data. Um, we, we only wish to see this in, in our kids. But this um, table shows you a comparison of, um, uh, of responses. And you can see just the, the, the first line, the uh, JCR30, which is 24% in placebo and 85% in tocilizumab. But I want you to go down and look at the systemic features that those also improved. You, get, you, know, you have a baseline value where the fever and the rash, um, they didn't get better on placebo. In fact, they got worse, but on tocilizumab, the fever went down from 55 to 15 and the rash went from 29 to 36. Um, and then the, the acute phase reactants and the labs also showed um, dramatic improvements, um, suggesting again, the, the efficacy of IL-6 inhibition in systemic JIA. Um, the adverse events here, um, I didn't find a lot to talk about here. Uh, I, although I do want to talk about this one line that's midway down here, uh, where it's macrophage activation syndrome, about two thirds of the way down on the left, you can see that no cases were observed in the double blind portion of the study, but in the extension, three cases of uh, MAS occurred um, while on tocilizumab. And I'm sorry about that. And my, my question um, to the group is, um, you know, and, and, her, and, and Dr. Brunner said it earlier that not everybody will do great on IL-1 or IL-6 alone if you have MAS, which, and this data says that you could get MAS on an IL-1 inhibitor or an IL-6 inhibitor. Anybody want to comment on this, this particular adverse event or any of the adverse events for that matter? We actually um, looked at MAS events and the frequency seemed to be not increased by IL-6 or IL-1. And uh, these MAS events were very often triggered by an EBV infection. And, uh, but most, uh, but you know, the MAS episodes were easily treatable. I would like to point out to the, uh, about the prior slide you showed, that these response rates in SJA on toxilizumab were seen even under consideration that steroids were tapered starting week eight of the study. So what you see here as lines and improvement over time, you know, would even be more rapid if steroids had been uh, maintained at the um, doses uh, at baseline. Um, so MAS occurred and, you know, and it's, as I stated, it's a genetic, there's a genetic predisposition. And as you cannot change the gene, genome of a patient, you will see MAS episodes in those patients. Um, Hermine, can I ask you if a patient has MAS um, in the face of active systemic JA, are they likely to get it again in the future? Uh, very often. Okay. That's very the strongest. Yeah, that's yeah, the strongest that's predictive factor for recurrence is the the first case. So yeah, that, I'd say it's about fifty percent get recurrence. Yeah. Uh, and I I think both in this trial of IL-6 and also in the trial of IL-1 in systemic JA patients, we did see MAS. And so uh, great disease control um, is not a get home free card 
for MAS. You still need to have a high index of suspicion. And as Hermina said, we've looked at it closely and treatment with these drugs does not seem to increase your risk of MAS, um, but it's certainly you need to continue to have a high index of suspicion for MAS, even in children whose disease is well controlled on either IL-1 or IL-6 therapy. Olga, have you seen adults who develop MAS have it happen again? I actually did have a patient have recurrent MAS, and uh, I feel like patients who already had one episode are more likely to develop one. Uh, the question is, uh, why it happens could be more severe disease, more active immune system, higher levels of inflammatory cytokines, uh, but it does happen yeah, more, quite, quite a bit yeah. in patients who have severe disease. And I've seen it as well. So the right side of this um, particular slide goes into infections and neutropenia. I'd like to ask, basically saying none of those events were seen in placebo and there were few events seen in the patients who were on tocilizumab. I want to ask Olga, Dan, and, um, and Hermine what, what their experience is with infections and neutropenia with um, tocilizumab. Neutropenia is well known uh, to be a side effect of toxilizumab, especially when high dosed. And when we give infusion in clinical care to, to uh, SJA children, we often um, evaluate the CBCs first before we decide to uh, infuse. Uh, we do know if one decreases the dose, which is very well tolerated in many SJA patients, then the neutropenia goes away. Right. We have done a study where we looked at uh, uh, neutropenia and the relationship to infections, and we couldn't find anything in the clinical trial data. Interesting to note. Okay, um, I think we can wrap up. I wanted to ask our panelists um, some important questions I think the audience is probably considering, and that is someone diagnosed with systemic JA in a kid or an adult, what's your go-to drug, IL-6 or IL-1, and how do you choose Let's start with um, Dr. Brunner. Now I have to ask you to please repeat your sentence because I was distracted for a second. That's okay. Someone newly diagnosed and not doing well despite steroids, which are you going to choose? An IL-1 inhibitor, an IL-6 inhibitor? Do you have a rationale for one versus the other? It comes down to a patient preference. Some families truly prefer having an IV infusable medications and they're just like that. And others prefer an injection. And there is no rhyme or reason, but that's, is, that's what it is. Uh, I put both versions out. On average, patients respond equally well to R1 and R6. However, there are about 15 to 20% of SJA patients who only respond to R1 or only respond to R6. Unfortunately, there is no lab test one can do a priori to, you know, to decide which one would be the better medication. All right. Olga, how do you make this decision? I think it's very specific to each patient and also at which stage in their disease they present to me. Most of the patient will present in early stages with a lot of systemic manifestation. And because of that, and also the more like uh, I would say milder safety profile for IL-1, I would go for IL-1 first. 
but I've done a lot, quite a bit of switching from IL-1 to IL-6, either as a result of a secondary failure of the treatment or the disease progression and need for better control of articular disease. So that happens probably uh, more down the line when it comes to treatment choice. Dan, if you're de dealing with one of these patients and there's a lot of arthritis on the table, does that change your thinking about which drug you're going to choose or what combination well, I, you're going to use? Well, I, I, if it's a lot of arthritis uh, in the absence of systemic features, then I'll use one of these plus methotrexate or leflonomide. Okay. So I think methotrexate still has a role or leflonomide still have roles to play in those patients who have significant arthritis. And for many systemic J patients over time, their systemic features kind of decrease in severity or disappear. And then what they're left with is varying degrees of arthritis. And those patients uh, um, do get some benefit from TNF agents and perhaps methotrexate. Uh, when we did the TNF trials, uh, we included systemic J patients who had not had systemic features for a year and just had a lot of arthritis and those patients demonstrated a response to TNF. So I think in uh, patients in whom the systemic features have really kind of burned out and they're left with chronic arthritis, then TNF or methotrexate uh, can also play a role in their treatment. So, um, for new onset patients, it's strictly very definitely focused on IL-6 or IL-1. And as Hermina said, it's based on patient's preference about frequency of injections or IV versus injections. Uh, and some families get uh, um, influenced by the safety data uh, being very clean for IL-1 inhibition. There is a bit of a concern, um, I guess, for those of us that see a lot of these patients about when you should be using high dose versus usual dose. So in an adult with anakinra, it's 100 milligrams a day versus 200 a day. I always like to say with um, systemic J and adult stills, they should be dosed at night because anakinra has got a six hour half-life and uh, your IL-1 peak is late, late at night. So why not use it then? Uh, and I'll, that's when I'll use my 100 or 200 milligrams. But 200 is either for very large or very sick patients not responding to 100. And then we have the results of the tender trial where it was uh, 8 versus 12. But that wasn't necessarily based on how severe you were. That was based on weight. When do you decide to use high dose versus usual dose if we're talking about canakinumab or tocilizumab? Well, well for us, the... There is no higher usual dose. We have the FDA approved dose for systemic JIA, and that's the one that gets used. So uh, if someone is more than 30 kilograms, you won't use 12 milligrams per kilogram? Uh, not to start with. Okay. Um, yeah, uh, uh, you know, the response, as you saw in the data, for kids who are more than 30 kilograms, I got treated with eight milligrams per kilo, the response is very good. Now, what what happens is after you've used it for a few months and you've got incomplete response, then then there is um, some who will increase the dose for um, uh, tocilizumab uh, to see if we can get more complete response with higher dosing. But I think the initial dose uh, is pretty much along the FDA approved 
dosage. Uh, for Anakinra, um, there are people in pediatric rheumatology who, you know, will dose Anakinra at um, 8 and 10 milligrams per kilo, even up to 20 milligrams per kilo. So uh, uh, it's been shown with Anakinra, there's a very broad safety profile. Uh, most people don't start that high, but um, certainly we we will escalate the dose above what would be the equivalent of 200 milligrams for an adult. We'll get a higher dose in kids uh, based on milligram per kilogram. Hermine, what do you think about dosing? If you look, there is one pharmacokinetic study on uh, anakinra in a very small infants, and it has been shown that in a, a dosing of six milligrams per kilogram in a kit under two is the same as a two to three milligrams in an older kit. So when we dose 12 milligrams per kilogram in small SJA children, it is to have the same medication exposure as one would uh, expect to block a similar amount of R6 in an adult patient. So you need, you have a different uh, pharmacodynamics in a child compared right. to an adult and the doses make up for that. Excellent, that's a really important point. Um, Olga, do you have any approach to high doses versus usual dose? In, when in you're my, treating stills? Yes. In my adult patients, I tend to use higher dose when they're in active disease state and usually taper down to lower maintenance dose when they achieve low disease activity or remission. I feel that I had more success with achieving good treatment response with higher doses initially. Okay. Um, I want to bring up a point that um, Dr. Brenner brought up earlier, which is, is there a role for Jack inhibition in patients with systemic JAA. I have used um, Jack inhibitors in patients who um, both during an MAS episode and as a follow-up, meaning that they get in, and they treat their MAS in the hospital with high doses of expensive drugs that were not going to be available as an outpatient. Um, and I was able to treat the patients as an outpatient with Jack inhibitors. So, um, where do you think this is going um, as far as Jack inhibition? and management of stills or MAS? Well, there's an ongoing clinical trial of CHAC inhibitors, of two CHAC inhibitors in systemic JIA. The results are still pending. I, as I alluded to, uh, MAS is not like, it comes in different severity forms and the earlier you diagnose it, the easier is it to treat. In those patients who have low level chronic MAS, CHAC inhibitors probably going to have a role to maintain like a, a very low MAS activity, so to prevent longer-term damage. So that's what we do uh, with our very sick SJA or inflammatory kids in Cincinnati. Yeah. Um, I want to get to our questions from our audience. Dr. Fung asked a question I think we already addressed, which is um, when to use an IL-1 versus an IL-6 versus a TNF and TNF when there's a dom TNF inhibitors when there's a dominance of arthritis. So I hope that answers your question, uh, Eugene. Um, uh, Robert Quinette in New Orleans asked a question about starting doses of uh, um, in uh, stills of anakinra. And I think we would use, uh, all of us, I think, uh, and please group um, argue with me or correct me that we use the recommended starting dose. So adults anakinra would be hundred milligrams and I give it at night, but if they're not responded, I'll go to 200. Um, um, and that's, of course, in patients without MAS. 
Uh, with MAS, I'm going with the highest possible dose I can get away with in the hospital for either canakinumab or anakinumab or tocilizumab um, to get rapid control. And I, I'm waiting for the opportunity to use emipalumab. Anybody have a different approach to starting doses? Well, for pediatric patients with uh, stills or SJA, the the usual starting dose is one to two milligrams per kilo. Um, some go higher, but that's a usual one. And if in fact the patient has MAS as part of their presentation, uh, it's critical to jump on that with cortical steroids. I'm not comfortable with with being dependent on either IL-1 or IL-6 therapy alone to treat uh, MAS in a systemic JA patient. So if, in my approach, it's steroids and cyclosporin to get the disease, the MAS under control. And then, uh, and then perhaps you can maintain disease control with IL-6 or uh, IL-1 uh, inhibition. Um, and um, um, so, Dan, will you? Will, uh, will, the other part of uh, Dr. Quinnett's question is: Do you use etoposide and in your case, uh, uh, cyclosporin? I think it has to do with what other specialties are involved in the consults. If heme gets involved with etoposide, if a non-heme rheumatologist or somebody else is going to be cyclosporin, but do you add either etoposide and or cyclosporin right from the start when you're using? Um, high dose steroids with or without a cytokine inhibitor? It depends on the severity of the MAS, but if the kids uh, uh, have uh, neurologic or cardiovascular instability, then for sure you add it. Um, if it's just they feel poorly and their labs are concerning, but uh, they're still alert and, and cardiovascularly stable, uh, then perhaps you can just get by with high-dose steroids. But if it's beyond that, uh, then I think, in my opinion, it's important, it's important to add cyclosporin to the high-dose steroids. Right. We do use etoposide, but we try to avoid it because of secondary malignancies that are reported with etoposide. So we try cyclosporin first, but it normally lay on cyclosporin if pulse steroids uh, have not worked. May give it a day or two and see how the patient is trending. Does the ferritin come down? Does the patient look clinically better? Um, if that is the case, we would stay the course. But you know, if the course is protracted, then cyclosporin would be an option. Or if things really not go well, then we would add on. Uh, we would try a check inhibitor. We may try other biologics. But you know, gamifant would be one of our next go-to if you can get our fingers on it. Yeah, I'd find gamma fat to be way more efficacious than etoposide and, and relatively few of, free of side effects too. Yeah, gamma fat is the emipalumab monoclonal antibody. It's approved for HLH. <laughs> um, that has had, I think, about a dozen patients with systemic JIA treated with it and may, may, may end up with an FDA approval for that in the future. Dr. Fung asked about, um, he wanted a correction on what Dr. Lavelle was saying. I think the answer is yes. It, you use IL-6 and IL-1 inhibition when systemic disease is in play. That's really what you have to, that's what you have to rely on in addition to other things. And um, so it's important to distinguish between systemic and articular disease as Dr. Um, Petrina talked about at the uh, top of the hour. Does anybody want to comment on the use of 
uh, or is there a role for IVIG in the management of Stills disease or MAS? Well, very long time ago, uh, we did a randomized controlled trial of IVIG and systemic GIA, and it did have a moderate benefit, uh, but the benefit went away very quickly after you stopped the IVIG. Um, so um, I think in the in the current setting with the access to IL-1 and IL-6, uh, there's really very little role for IVIG in systemic JA. Which brings up a really last point that I want everyone to weigh in on. How do you know when to stop? So IVIG, when you gave it, it worked. Um, and then when you stopped it, the things came back quickly. Um, Stills disease by nature is a disease that will remit spontaneously and without any sort of forewarning or without any clear biomarker. When I diagnose patients and they ask, how long am I going to have to take this stuff for? I say eight months to eight years, and uh, we'll figure it out along the way. But what are your rules? And we'll go around the horn here for knowing when to reduce the tocilizumab or the canakinumab or the anakinra um, in someone who's doing well on the therapy. But let's begin with Olga. Yeah, so typically I use both clinical and serological parameters to, to make that uh, decision. I want to make sure that patient does not report any active symptoms on treatment for at least six months before we consider taper. And during the six months period, I would expect them not to have elevation of inflammatory markers, ferritin levels. In some cases, if I have my doubts, I, I check out six uh, levels when, when, when it's feasible. And I just want to assure that they're not having any active, uh, you know, elevation of inflammatory markers in addition to not having symptoms before we try a taper. Okay. Dr. Brunner? In the clinical trial, we uh, tapered uh, immunosuppressive therapy uh, in a patient who remained on a given therapy inactive for at least six months. So I would taper the biologics after I discontinued any background medicine, like NSAIDs, steroids, methotrexate if, some, if a patient was on. Um, then I would not stop abruptly, but rather taper the med, uh, taper R6 and R1. That can be either done by prolonging the interval between the canapinumab injections or decreasing the dose, and the same can be done for toxilizumab. You will see that a subset of patients tolerate the tapering, and a substance of those will not. And here then you have the answer. If you can't even taper it, then you know, don't try to discontinue them. But in those who can taper it, you will continue to taper until you get to the lowest possible dose. Okay. Dan, I think we have to cut it off there because the top of the hour, I don't want to run over. I want to thank um, Drs. Lavelle and Brunner and uh, Petrina for a wonderful discussion uh, and a really good journal club. I want to remind the audience next week or the week after we're going to have a journal club um, or Tuzan Rheumatology dedicated to discussion of new GRAPA guidelines. So look for that in your inbox. Thanks, everyone. Have a good night.